the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Thank you for tuning in, and great to have you with us. Don't forget, go to, uh, excuse me, go to ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the daily email, ProAmericaReport.com. You'll also find there uh, all the interviews we do, and we'll have some great ones. Today, we've got some great guests coming up. Terrence Williams will be on the program. Jonathan Leaf, guy who wrote a column on The Spectator about uh, Phyllis Schlafly's The Pro-America Report, uh, The Pro-America, jeez, Mrs. America, and... Um, it's going to be interesting to talk to him, too. Uh, now, let me uh, get a couple things going, though. Also, please do follow me on Twitter, at Eagle Ed Martin. Tell your friends, at Eagle Ed Martin. Helps, 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 helps to get the word out. And so that'd be great if you could do that. Uh, now, what you need to know today, we got a couple things to cover. Uh, and I want to make sure Joe Biden did do a, 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 a speech today. And then he took questions. But his staff called on the reporters. So Biden finishes a little speech and he says, now I'll take some questions. The reporters are going to call on you. I mean, excuse me, the staff is going to call on the reporters. He didn't call on them. In other words, he didn't want to what? Have to name, I don't know, point to them. He didn't want to be off guard. So then the, then the staff clearly went in an order that they had set ahead of time to reporters. Again, you know, we're used to this president, this current president, who's so freewheeling. He takes questions here, there, everywhere. It's not always like that. Obama was not like that. He didn't take a lot of questions. But the problem for Biden is even if this is his preferred way to do this, he's uh, feeding into the narrative of how's he holding up. And he didn't seem too strong, but he didn't seem terrible. He's, you know, they announced the uh, debate the moderators today. So that clears, it appears that everybody's still going to go forward with that. So it's, um, it, you know, maybe he's not totally going to disappear. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's not going to fall apart. It looks like he's figured it out. So uh, that's one to watch. All right. Now, uh, let me say polls. I, I, I was doing a Periscope earlier today. And by the way, go to at Eagle Ed Martin and you can watch that Periscope there. It's Periscope is the video uh, sort of uh, video version of Twitter. And so I was open that up and I, on the title, I call it polls lie and polls tie polls lie tie. Uh, and here's what I mean. Here's what I want you to know today. There's polls out now that show the race is closer in all the battleground states and nationally. So there's a couple observations you need to know about polling because we're going to live with polling for the next 61 days, right? We're going to have it constantly. The first thing you need to know is that polls and pollsters can lie in any direction that the pollster wants or the person paying for the poll. So in the last three months, uh, you've heard these polls about Biden way ahead, Biden way ahead. That's the direction that the pollster wants. You do it by oversampling certain groups and all these things. And they generally do that. But when you get closer to an election day, the polls can't lie or they won't have a job next time. Right. If you run a campaign and you're the pollster for somebody and he loses by 10 points and you said he's going to win by five, you'll never get hired again because they'll all tell their friends. So you've got to get closer to what you know to be the truth and tighten it up so that at the end you can get closer and say, well, we were wrong in June by a lot, but by, you know, things change over the summer. Biden had a bad camp, a bad convention and that's what did it. So you find fake because fake reasons to blame the shift and it's not your fault if you're a pollster. So that's what you're seeing now. 60 days out, you're seeing the tying of the get, they have to get their lies back to ties and they're banking on and it's a pretty good bet that america's sharply divided 
And so you can get closer to something like a tie and it will sound defensible, especially, you know, you're going to start to see a sorting out. They're not going to keep saying that Georgia is up for grabs. There's just no way Georgia's up for grabs. If Georgia's up for grabs, Biden's going to win 45 states. It's not going to happen. So, but they've said that because that's a good talking point for the, the left to the, the pollsters. Oh yeah. Even, even in Georgia, which is, you know, red state. So you're going to see now this tying polls start to tie. Now, one other thing about polls, you know, if we, you've heard me say that when I think about the economy, I use what I call the Eagle Index. The Eagle Index is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the unemployment rate. It's four, it's really four measurements put together and you take a look at them and say where we are. The, the Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, tell you big, that tells you big companies' feelings. You look at unemployment, that tells you what the economy, where people are. The third one is small business confidence and consumer confidence. And those two surveys, I guess they're polls, but they're surveys, and they ask the same question every time to the same group. And you can start to get a a trend line. And so you can't really rely, my opinion, on polls for the actual numbers, but you can rely for the direction. As things move in a certain way, you can say, well, that's moving in a certain way. My argument right now and what I feel and what you know from campaigns, if you know a little bit about campaigns and have been involved, you start to tell what direction things are going. Right now, the direction seems to be in Trump's favor. The president's favor because people are moving in that direction. He had a better convention, all these things. Now, it's hard to know, but that's the way the polls are starting to show also. And, and I think that's the way we should think about polls. Don't think about the snapshot. Think about how the trend line goes. It's a little bit better way because, again, the pollsters are going to have to try to start getting re- aligned to reality so that they don't get caught with their uh, with their uh, polls way off. So that's that's one way to think of it. One more thing about polls is the uh, the reality of the polls is um, that it's going to show also show some of the voter intensity This is what I want to say. But today, earlier today, I have to concede this. Uh, Joe Biden released a, his fundraising numbers from the last quarter. And uh, it's extraordinary numbers, a massive haul, 300 million plus dollars. Now, part of the reason is because it, when you have your primary, you can't raise money from people again until you get through the convention. So he finally got through the convention. Now it's considered general election. The money can come back in. So you can go back to all the people that gave you and get more money again, gave to you and get more money again. So that's one thing. But. It's a big deal to have raised that much money. And money matters for two reasons. One, it lets you do things. It lets you do things you need for your campaign. There's no doubt that Joe Biden's going to have enough money to compete in the ways he wants. It's going to be his decisions are going to be uh, important. He's not knocking on doors. His campaign is not knocking on doors at all. Uh, you know, they're going to run TV and all. I mean, sometimes you wonder if the spending is off, but that's a different question. The second reason that kind of money matters is if you get $300 million, you're getting it from a lot of people. And once people give to you in a campaign, they're not persuadable and they're likely given again and they're really on your team. So it's as an indication of voter intensity. It's a it's a good indication for Biden. I have to concede that to him. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to believe anybody thinks that it's a good idea. But that's that is what um, that is what uh, you can see there. That's what you can read into it. That's what you need to know on a huge fundraising numbers like that. It's a it's a real deal. You got to give him credit for that one. And we'll see. I haven't seen the presence numbers yet uh, to see what his matching numbers are. I'm sure it'll be extraordinary. President's been raising like one hundred million dollars uh, uh, in, in each quarter uh, in each a month, a lot of months. So you, you, I'm sure it'll be a big number. But that was a that's a big number for um, that's a big number for uh, uh, Biden to be able to post. I mean, it, it shows. And and here's one other thing about campaigns. You will um, you will. uh 
make it, 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 you will start to hear the Trump Pence campaign say, hey, don't take it for granted, because a lot of the MAGA people feel really good and feel better. It's they're going to say, hey, you know, we, we got to get focused. This is time to come back. And it's, you know, it's important to to, uh, um, you know, the uh, you know, to get yourself focused on uh, on what's happening. And so that's another big thing about that that says and that, you know, what that means. So that's what you need to know there. All right. One more thing. Big story. And I, I, I want to highlight this because I feel like the, the mainstream, the, excuse me, the fake news media is really falling down on the job. And that is this. Over the last three days, uh, the national security advisor, his name's O'Brien, and Jared Kushner have been over in the United Arab, Arab Emirates and Israel, and they've been doing this peace deal. And the very first Israeli commercial flight that left Israel to go to the United, UAE, what, Kushner was on it, I think with O'Brien and a few others. You know, it was a commercial. It's a big deal, and you don't see any coverage of it. And the reason they can't cover it is because they don't want to give this president credit. But it's a big deal that some of the Arab nations that don't like Israel traditionally or historically are coming to deals, coming to the position of getting along. It's a huge deal. It's a very positive development. It's something that should be you know, touted for our country for safety and for our future, and they can't do it. Because they're so wrapped up in um, in what the in, in their reality that you can't stop them. They can't they can't stop themselves to give credit. So you're not going to see much coverage of that. And I think Kushner and the, and the guy they went off to um, uh, to England now for more meetings there. It's a success. You know, Iran is more and more isolated. Arab nations are more and more open to peace. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. You're not hearing much about it. All right. We got a great show tonight. Uh, tonight. Yeah, we got a great show tonight. And we've got, uh, I want to make sure I get the order right. You're going to want to stay here. We're going to talk to uh, Jonathan Leaf. I mentioned he's got this uh, essay he wrote on Mrs. America, the $50 million hit job on Phyllis Schlafly. And then I'm really excited. We're going to talk with uh, Terrence Williams, the comedian and uh, the live wire. He wrote a book that's out uh, just a few days from now. It's called From the Foster Ho- House to the White House. And we'll talk with Terrence Williams and after the break, too. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and get signed up for what you need to know, the daily wink. I uh, won't let you down, I promise. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report, back in a moment. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Been looking forward to this uh, guest for a, a few days because I saw this piece. His name is Jonathan Leaf. And Jonathan Leaf, among other things, he's a playwright and a screenwriter. And uh, he's got uh, all kinds of one of my favorite guys to read in the Wall Street Journal is Terry Teachout. Uh, he's, he's this extraordinary um, kind of critic. And he uh, he's reviewed uh, Jonathan Leaf's uh, play, Pushkin, and said it's, it's fantastic. Um, so that's good, good enough praise right there for me, I have to tell you. But what I flagged here, was in Spectator at uh, Spectator.us, a Spectator uh, magazine. There's a piece he wrote called Gloria Steinem's Revisionist History. And it's a piece Jonathan Leaf's writing about the Mrs. America series and Gloria Steinem, who's 86 years old, commenting on it. So first of all, Jonathan, welcome to the program. How are you today? Great. Great to be here. Well, so let me ask, as, as I looked at this piece, Gloria Steinem at 86, you have to give her credit. She's, she's, <laughs> she's not shy. So she's mad about the Mrs. America series, and she's kind of re-spinning it. Walk us through uh, how you open up your piece. 
Uh, actually, it might not be the best form, but Barry um, <laughs> Stein gave a series of interviews uh, over about a month uh, about a month ago, um, right. in which she said that the uh, miniseries was inaccurate, and a number of things she said were false. One thing she said was uh, the miniseries focuses on uh, Phyllis Schlafly, your your mentor, who was played by Kate Blanchett in the series. And as she said that Phil Schlafly had no impact and that no one was persuaded by her arguments or by her lobbying, and that's simply not true. In fact, the standard history, there were two kind of influential histories of the Equal Rights Amendment, one by Professor Harvard and uh, one by another professor. And they both say, no, actually, uh, Phil Schlafly's campaign played a critical role in the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment. So that's simply not true. Um, but the article goes into a variety of other serious issues. Having to do with whether, you know, Gloria Steinem has been pursuing uh, an ideology that's really in the interest of, of uh, the vast majority of women. Well, and so, and Steinem, um, she, so she comes out and she says she doesn't like that Mrs. America, by the way, as a, as a playwright, a screenwriter, and someone who observes this, it, no matter what, once you get Kate Blanchett to be the star of Phyllis Schlafly, the, it, the show was going to be written around her anyway, right? I mean, that was the reality of a, yeah. of a, not, of a seven hour miniseries. Kate Blanchett is going to be the dominant figure. You got, you've got to build around the star, right? Yeah, and, and she's an extraordinary talent. I mean, uh, she has so many, so many uh, uh, gifts as a performer. She's enormously sympathetic, uh, whether she's playing someone good or bad. Uh, incredible range, incredible presence. Um, so yeah, but but also the, the you know the nature of the thing is obviously we're going to build the story around her. So we're going to talk with Jonathan Leaf, and I'll put this up on uh, social media, his article uh, in The Spectator. Um, so Steinem, though, you're also, you also write about uh, something that they, 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 oh, the, 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 the um, miniseries dodged a bit, and that is Gloria Steinem, she, she really, uh, well, they covered it a bit, I suppose, but she really pushed out the others, right? She meant she was going to be the dominant sort of uh, feminist, and there's a lot of uh, positioning. What's your sense of the reality of her success as a leader? Was she the, just the right face? Was she really a leader? Is she, as she rewrites history, she's trying to say she was more important than it looks like she was. You know, what's your sense of that, uh, of her real role? Well, it's, it, it is enormous, but she, she did pu- push out a lot of other people, both for personal and for ideological reasons. So, uh, when what was which today called second wave feminism emerged in the early 60s, uh, there were two main groups of feminists. One uh, coalesced around Betty Friedan, who was a person who really uh, started this thing, second wave feminism, with the publication of her book, uh, The Feminine Mystique. And Betty Friedan was a housewife who lived outside in the suburbs of, of uh, New York City. She had three kids. Uh, one of whom since become a famous scientist, by the way. Uh, she had three kids, huh. and she was a big believer in marriage. And there's something a lot of people don't understand today. She was a supporter of marriage uh, and motherhood. She wasn't against these things. She thought these were really positive aspirations for women. However, she also felt that she herself was not entirely fulfilled simply being a housewife and mother, and she thought that many other women might not be as well, and she thought that to, that women needed more opportunities in the workplace and other areas. And this was what's called moderate feminism, and that's what Betty Friedan represented. Then there was another group that included Bella Abzag, who was a kind of closet communist, and uh, Gloria Steinem, her friend. And that was the group that we call radical feminism. And they, they pushed out all the moderate feminists. And radical feminism mm-hmm. was very hostile to both motherhood and marriage, 
Um, you know, famously, she didn't actually come up with a comment, but she popularized it. You know, Gloria Steinem said, women need men like a fish needs a bicycle. Um, uh-huh. And <laughs> this this represented both her personal ambition to be a dominant figure in the movement. It's interesting, right after the article came out, an old friend who's known her oh, more than 50 years uh, got in touch with me and said that, you know, that was always a big issue with Gloria Steinem, that, you know, she needed to be the center of the movement. She needed to be the face on the magazine cover. And when other people got mad yeah. at she was always upset. So that's part of it. But there's also an ideological component. She had a terrible, 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 I can't repeat it enough, childhood. Her mother was schizophrenic. Her father had abandoned uh, her as a child, a dependent mother. Uh, her mother, as a schizophrenic, used to beat her. They were poor. Um, and she went through this really Dickensian childhood. And she came out of this with a belief that nobody should undergo this uh, again. Some people have said to me, I did a lot of interviews about the subject related to a play I wrote some years ago. And some people said to me she was afraid of having children because she didn't, She was afraid that her child might be schizophrenic like her mother. She herself has said that she believes her mother was schizophrenic because of oppression from you know male-dominated society, patriarchy, and all these kind of cliche terms, which anyone who knows mm-hmm. much about uh, mental illness finds quite dubious. But in any event, she was very uncomfortable with this. When she got involved with men who wanted to marry her, wanted to start a family, she tended to, in fact, invariably rejected them and ended the relationships. She didn't get married until she was in her 60s, when she could no longer have children. So, uh, you know, this reflected uh, her own personal issues. And, and so on the one hand, she drove out other people who represented other ideas. On the other hand, it also was an attempt to, to draw attention to herself. Which continues. Uh, we're we're, we're talking... Yeah, we're talking with Jonathan Leaf. I wanted to ask you about the very end of, of your piece, because you said Steinem is not motivated by money, yet her, blind, I, yet her ideological obsessions and her need for influence and attention have blinded her to the ways in which they have, they, they have corrupted her character. Before I get to her character, did she, did she damage the movement, right? I mean, you remember, the, the, and I remember Phyllis tell me about it, when Phyllis said when they went down to Houston in 1979 and the parade of terribles on the pro-ERA side included, you know, very radical abortionists, very radical uh, homosexual rights, you know, angry people, and, and the famous uh, images cast all over the world, broadcast all over the world, really, uh, Phyllis would say that was a lot of people said, oh, that's what you want? Yeah, that doesn't sound right to me. And, and was that Steinem? I mean, it, you, you know, we, we, she's been lionized for 40 more years when, in fact, maybe she was the one that cost them, if that's what you wanted, the progress. Is What do you think of that? Well, you're right. Yeah, I think it could well be. Though the other side is her vision of feminism is what, in many ways, is triumphed. It's what people think of as feminism today. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and if that's an unhealthy view for women, then she's done enormous damage for women. I also talked about in the article something that's kind of been buried, which is that uh, a friend of hers, uh, Phyllis Chester, is very influential and quite brilliant feminist, um, came to her at one point and said she was involved in, an, in a United Nations um, conference on women, that she'd been raped by an African dip- diplomat uh, from Sierra Leone named Nicholson David. Um, and she said, and several other women working the panel had as well, and she said, can you help? You know, the diplomat had diplomatic immunity. He couldn't be prosecuted in the United States. But she said, would you help me expose this? And Gloria Steinem said, yes. And then she realized it was going to create a big hullabaloo, and she'd be coming out against a, an African diplomat, which might be unpopular. And another friend of hers had meanwhile taken over this conference, a friend of hers named Robin Morgan. And she just decided she didn't want to deal with this. So this was a feminist leader 
is fighting for political mm-hmm. reasons that she didn't want to help a friend who'd been raped. I mean, this is shocking. Right. And by the way, yeah. I tried to get in touch with her about this for the Spectator article. I got in touch with her at Ms. Magazine, and I got in touch with her. Uh, I tried to get in touch with her uh, uh, in a second way uh, by calling. Uh, and in neither case was she willing, both by email and both telephonically and by email. She was not, she's not even willing to talk about this anymore. Um, and in terms of her treatment of Betty Friedan, who supposedly you'd think would be at least something of an ally, her magazine for 10 years would not even mention Betty Friedan's name or the National Organization huh. for Women, which at that time was run by so-called moderate feminists. So, you know, her treatment of other women in the movement has been abominable, and the media has just refuse to acknowledge this well it's a really interesting piece and i it's a, it's a great topic thank you for writing it and I, I just checked at writer john leaf on twitter for folks who want to follow you and uh, i'll put it all up on social media thanks for writing it again the piece is called gloria steinem's revisionist history jonathan leaf over at spectator.us thanks for the time today sir thanks so much it's a pleasure all right we'll take a quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment this is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I've been really looking forward to speaking with this guest. Mr. Terrence K. Williams is, uh, everybody knows him. I mean, he's, he's, he's sort of on the scene everywhere. He's a, I think he's a comedian originally. He's done acting. He's uh, all kinds of things. But now he's got a new book out. Comes out in about six days, if I'm looking at my calendar right. It's called From the Foster House to the White House and uh, about a million and a, I don't know, a million and a half million something. Follow him on Twitter at W underscore Terrence. Make sure you spell Terrence with an E T E R R E N C E. I spelled it with an A and I got myself lost in Twitter, but welcome Mr. Williams. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on brother. Well, so, hey, I love the on your pin tweet on your Twitter feed is a picture of you grinning on the cover of your book from the foster house to the White House. And then a picture of you. I don't know. How old were you when you're you, and it's the same smile? Of course, it's the same man. But you're about 25 years ago. What? Tell me about the first. Tell me about how did you get to, to to write the book? I'm not talking about what's in it, but somebody said you're doing great. Write a book. And you had to sit down and write a book. So how, how did that come about? You know, a lot of people have been wanting to know more about my story, and a lot uh-huh. of people were emailing me and inboxing me saying, please write a book, please write a book, we want to know more, and I really hesitated. I re- To be honest with you, I did not want to do it at first, because I uh-huh. had to relive a lot of things. And it was, uh-huh. and I was like, oh, do I got to think about that stuff again? Do I got to think about all those things again? You know, even though I've always been out, outspoken about me being in foster care, I never really went into a lot of detail. So I was like, oh, this is almost like talking to a therapist. I'm going to have to relive all of this stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I said, oh, you know, but so I said, you know what, you know, uh, I need to be, I do want to inspire foster kids and and other people that are facing challenges. So I said, you know, and the fact that I made it through all of that, uh, the, the, I I can at least help out other people by sharing my story and giving them hope and inspiration and motivation. 
Well, and we're talking, I think you're right. We're talking with Terrence K. Williams, and the book is From the Foster House to the White House. It's out on September 9th, available everywhere you buy books. You can find it. All right, now to your to the last couple years where you've uh, established yourself. You mentioned people want to know more about you. you you're established yourself as a, a charismatic uh, leader, especially on video. I, I've seen you on Twitter more than anywhere else, but I know you're in other places with it. But, you know, you do these videos, and you, you've got a sense of yourself. You're kind of not just confident, but you know what's going on, and you've got your voice now. How would you describe your voice, Terrence K. Williams' voice in this moment, what you're doing? What is your voice? You know, I've never thought about how I would describe my voice. You put me on the spot. I never think about that. Well, and, and what and, and what and, and what I mean, I'll tell you what I mean is that when I watch you, nobody's as talented and as good as you that hasn't, you know, you were an actor, you're a comedian, so you know how to perform. But you now I, I remember one time a politician said you give a speech enough times and suddenly you'll click and you'll feel what you just feel comfortable in how you're not exactly lecturing. You don't lecture people. You're teaching. But it's kind of um, and maybe maybe I'll ask you this way and get to the point, get to the same question. Why do you feel like you need to talk? Why do you feel like you're going to tell people what what is it? What's motivating you to get out there? You know, I've I've always been a talker. I've always been outspoken. Actually, in elementary, my teachers used to call me motor mouth. Because I always had something to say about everything, you know, and I've always been the type to speak my mind. And it's hard for me to hold back. It's hard for me not to say something, not to say what I feel. And a lot of, you know, a lot of family told me, Terrence, stay out of politics or you will never make it in Hollywood. But it was so hard for me just to keep my feelings to myself. It was hard, hard for me to keep my opinion to myself. I said, no, I need to tell people my opinion. I need to let the world know that, you know, that hold on. These people, because you have people out there, politicians, that call themselves speaking for me, saying that just because I'm black, I'm a Democrat, saying all black people support them. No, they don't. I have to say something. I have to let them know that they're wrong right. <laughs> because I'm black and I don't get down like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then I wanted to, you know, also educate other people in a fun way, though, you know, so not only mm-hmm. express my views and, and try to uh, uh, get get people to listen to the other side, get people to, because we are living in a, you know, now in today's climate, if you don't agree with somebody, if your opinions are different, they don't want to hear what you have to say. So, but some of those people listen to me because I do it in a fun way and I do it yeah. in an entertaining way. And since I do yeah. it in that way, I've actually have converted people over to the other side <laughs> you know? yeah. because it's OK yeah. I listen to this character. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the listeners can hear in your voice. And I hear it and I see it on your videos. If they haven't looked at it, I'll put it up on social media to go follow you and all. And again, it's at W as in Williams underscore Terrence is his Twitter handle. And he's on, on Instagram and other places, too. But it's joy. That you know, in other words, the, I mean, the book. I've only read the excerpts of the book. I'll get the book when it's out. But you know, you had a tough time. But you know, l- growing up. But let's be honest. Everybody has a tough time at some point, right? So what the what the thing about yeah. uh, Terrence? To me, what Terrence K. Williams says is, I had a tough time too. But not only am I here, but I'm I'm laughing and smiling. It doesn't make it easier. Doesn't make it simpler. Doesn't make it anything else. But I want to hone in something on something else because you said it, and I and I think of it as a sort of Herschel Walker dynamic from the. The, the convention when Herschel Walker said 
I've been friends with this guy 37 years. And when people tell me he's racist, I'm offended because I'm, I don't tell me I don't know what the game is. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, Herschel Walker, I'm a black man, been around, raised in the South. You're telling me I don't see a racist? I mean, what kind of, and so that's one of the things, Terrence, that seems to me, if Donald Trump was a racist, there would be 50 uh, African-American, you know, car parkers or a, a, someone he worked with who said he called me this or he, they've never had any evidence. And a guy like you who could, sm- I, I'm a, white guy i don't know anything about racism so i'm not speaking i'm just saying you could you should be given credit for spotting it a mile away and you're not saying either the policies or the man is racist exactly and you know what i met president trump okay um uh-huh. and i can tell you right now this man is not a racist now one thing that i've learned and i've been on the trump train since day one now me going to <laughs> When I was in yeah. foster, I started foster care at a very, very early age. I mean, I remember actually that picture that you asked me about that I posted next yeah. to my book cover. That was my yep. uh, first day going to kindergarten, and I and I was starting, and I, I moved into a foster home before I started kindergarten, and and wow. so that was when I was in foster care. Um, and so that so that was that picture. But listen, I've been in some abusive homes. I've been around a lot of bad people. I've been around a lot of good people. So at an early age, I was able to to pick up this sense of bad people, to pick up a sense of good people. And I can tell you right now, the reason why I supported Trump, I knew he was real. I've been able to sense real and fake. I, I'm, I can spot real and fake and, and phony out <laughs> real quick because I've had to yeah. be around that because I've dealt with a lot of bad people going through foster care. So I've been able to pick up on that real, real quick, you know, and president Trump was not that at all. And I knew this man was the real deal. And that's why I supported him the day he came down those escalators looking like a billion dollars. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Mr. Terrence K. Williams, his new book, which will be out in about five days is called from the foster house to the white house. Um, Terrence, I, I want to ask you about, uh, and it'll be in the book a bit, but I also want to ask you my boss, my old boss, the men, my mentor, the late Phyllis Schlafly wrote a book called who killed the American family. And in the book, she wrote about a lot of the problems in our policies and all. But one thing she wrote about was the, the, the court system and how it hit the state level had become dominated by people that had different agendas. And, and so the sometimes the foster care system was uh, people were making get paid to do it and they're in it for the wrong reasons. We we lost the, 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 the father's rights and all as a matter of a guy that survived that system and, and thrived and has joy. When you look back, I mean, it, it, can, can we we need to change that? Right. I mean, we need to we need people to understand how much we have to return. There's a lot of kids in tough situations and they seem to not get much attention. We're, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful. We're doing we do a lot of talking about sexual trafficking for young girls. We should. It's terrible. It's horrendous, especially when it's overseas. But at home, there's lots of kids that are in these situations too, boys and girls that are really challenged. And I'm not sure we're hitting it right. What do you think? No, exactly. We need to start focusing on, on our children. We need to. Is there are a lot of children at home, boys and girls, like you said, that need help. You know, that need a lot of support. You have a lot of fathers missing from the home. You have a lot of children in foster care. You have a lot of kids that are going hungry, and we focus on on raising. Listen, I love the animals. I love dogs. Okay, I'm a dog uh-huh. person. I love dogs. I'm not a dog, <laughs> but I love dogs. Um, and I, I, you know, I like cats a little bit as long as they're not black. 
because black cats scare me. Um, bad, yeah, bad <laughs> I only like black people, not black cats. Um, but, um, <laughs> Got it. But, okay, let me get serious here, though. But you have people that are raising that will go uh, that will that will uh, uh, go to arms lengths and that will that will do backflips to raise money and help out homeless dogs and homeless cats. But here we have children in America that need help. And as Americans, we should, if you are able, you should step up and help out. You know, um, um, and for instance, we have a lot of fathers missing. We can't make those fathers come home. But if, right. but they have a lot of organizations out there where you can sign up to be a big brother, where you can where where you can sign up to actually be a father figure to these kids who need someone in their life, these boys who need guidance. So as Americans, why don't we step up? You know, if you can, I don't care if you're not willing, be willing, because you're able. You know, like let's let's come together yeah. as Americans and let's start helping out our children. You know, in this country. Yeah, it's. I think that's. I think that might be. You know, the, again, the book, and I got to wrap it up. Uh, Mr. Terrence K. Williams. The book is from the foster house to the White House, and and I, you know, I think that you know the Lord's got a lot of uh, things to do with you, uh, Terrence. But one of them is this uh, ability to give people hope when they see some. You know, they got a lot to survive, but also shine a light. You know, uh, America first means you know you can't love your neighbor overseas until you take care of your neighbor right next door to you. And I and I think that's one of the things. This is a great uh, help for you to do this. So congratulations on the book and everything you're doing and uh and stay in touch if we can help you in any way we'd love to thank you so much brother i appreciate you all right mr terrence k williams his book is out in just a few days from the foster house to the white house we'll take a quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report be back in a moment this is the pro america report on the answer san diego this is the phyllis schlafly report a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro family legacy of phyllis schlafly now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Americans watched in horror as mobs of anarchists seized the streets of our major cities, breaking windows, setting fires, and looting stores. It didn't take long before real violence erupted. The anarchists began to brazenly attack law enforcement officers, innocent bystanders, and even each other. To rub salt in the wound, they even began pulling down statues that had stood for decades or even more than a century. The real target of the violent leftist statue destroyers are not the Mount Rushmore faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. In reality, their goal is to discredit America itself by smearing those who gave us the freedom and the prosperity we enjoy today. Some weak Republicans have sought compromise with the radical anarchists by evicting Confederate statues from public spaces. But what about Arlington National Cemetery, where America's honored dead are buried? Arlington sits on the 1,100-acre estate once owned by the Virginian Robert E. Lee and his wife, who inherited the property from George Washington's adopted grandson, George Washington Custis. Some 400,000 American heroes rest in peace there under the silent watch of the now-empty Custis Lee Mansion. Will Arlington be the next target of the Vandals? The ongoing attacks on statues have little to do with the Confederacy. We know this is true because the same vandals who want to tear down statues of Stonewall Jackson also want to tear down statues of President Lincoln. The vandals are just as resentful of the most notable men in American history. We have to acknowledge what's at stake here. Statues of historical figures are a physical manifestation of the deeply rooted reverence Americans have always held for our history. 
When rioting leftists tear down these statues, they're expressing a hatred for history itself. They want to destroy everything from the past and rebuild it in their own image. Statues may remind us of our history, but they cannot defend our history. It's up to patriotic Americans like you and me to defend the foundation of our national values. Will you do your part? This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Hey, a little wrap-up today as we get headed towards the end of the program. we got to do a little China check. The Chinese regime, always interesting, very bad for America. Let me just clue you in on something. I'm going to talk about this next week. I, as you may recall, I do a weekly webinar. Uh, it's called Project Pro-America. About, an, about a half an hour and then 15 minutes of questions every Wednesday. And right now I'm in the midst of a China webinar. And uh, China, the question is the, the uh, problem of communist China. And that's the uh, big problem with China. The underlying problem is the communist regime. It's not the people, uh, but it's a big, big problem. So here's one thing I want to tip you in on. The Wall Street Journal uh, I've covered, you know, the TikTok. TikTok is the app. Uh, millions and millions of America download, Americans download it and use it. Very popular. And what was, what, what's, what, be, what began, it's a Chinese owned company owns it. China, communist regime company owns it. And what brought this up, I think, initial trigger was that there was an engineer who said he reverse engineered TikTok's basics of its, of its, uh, of its, um, um, app and, and discovered that it was doing lots of, uh, uh monitoring and gathering and all kinds of things. Now, I don't know if that's true. I just know that was about two months ago and it was persuasive and people talked about it and it sounded reasonable. And so the conversation began pretty quickly. TikTok's got all this influence, all these people paying attention. It's run by the communist regime. How is that good? And so the Trump administration said, yeah, we're going to make TikTok shut down uh, or they can sell themselves. And so they've been in talks. You may recall this initially. I think initially um, Microsoft would jumped in on that. Maybe maybe Google did. Uh, Google first did. And then Microsoft did. And uh, Walmart has talked up. And there's a couple different groups talking about buying TikTok. And the story in The Wall Street Journal today is TikTok, TikTok is... Uh, well, they're, they're interested in a deal, but they don't want to reveal their algorithms. And so that's basically what the company is. The algorithms and how they work, what they're doing with the information is the whole point. And the whole point that the algorithms and the sort of technology and the program, it's not the name that's valuable. I mean, it's a cool name. It's kind of a funky name, you know, but it's not the name that's valuable. It's the idea of how they're using and, and directing and moving the data and managing the data because they have on their in their control. The communist regime does millions, tens of millions of people, maybe 100 million. So that's what TikTok said. Now, over on uh, in the uh, on the pages of Politico, a lengthy piece in the Politico magazine. I told you Politico is leans left, but it has good journalists. And so I like to read it. And they have a lengthy piece in the magazine. And the title is uh, in China, the great firewall is changing a generation. And so here's the thing. The Chinese firewall is the communist regime controls who gets in to the Internet. They basically have their own Internet. 
And within their own Internet, guess what the communist regime does? They control what the people see to, to show what they see. As I say to you before, what you see is what you know, and it becomes what you do. And so the regime, the communist regime, has their own Internet protected from the free speech and the free values, the good, bad, indifferent of the West or anywhere else. You can't get in behind the channel. Well, you know, somebody like the Epic Times, the newspaper that has been founded by dissidents from China, they try to get in through the firewall. They try to find ways in. It's constantly a game. But the Chinese regime loves to keep them out. They're happy to build a firewall. They talk about it. They're not embarrassed by it. They don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. They want to protect their country. Within their country, they're controlling what people see, what people know, and what they do. That's how it works. My point in telling you this is, of course, TikTok, it, they're not interested in giving over the, the inside, the guts of TikTok so that people can actually control what, they, what they're doing. That would mean that they would just be walking away, which may be what they end up uh, doing. You know, that may be what the, uh, uh, the, um, that they just decide that uh, they're going to walk away from it completely. But right now, if they're trying to sell it and keep the secret sauce, it's a classic communist regime. My point here is the webinar I teach is called The Problem of Communist China. And the problem isn't small. It's the whole way the regime works. It says that's the way it works. All right, we got to run. we got to run. Thank you to Noah, our technical director, also to Joanna for booking our guests. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow on another great show. Talk to you then. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you tomorrow.